The OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, May the 26th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is producing the program. Let's get it going. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, if the Newfoundland Growlers are going to play comeback kid again, well, they've got their hands full. Dropped the third straight one goal. Lost to the Florida Everblades last night. This one, 4-3. So, I don't know how many teams in ECHL history have ever come back from a 3-0 deficit in the playoff round, but that's where the Growlers find themselves. Game four uh, happens in Fort Myers on Friday I want to say good luck, congratulations to Brendan McCarthy and Mark Rumsey. Well, Brendan plays for the Summerside Capitals. They're playing in the Centennial Cup. There's only a couple of Newfoundlanders, I think, participating. Newfoundlanders are Labradorians. So Brendan McCarthy would be one, and Mark Rumsey would be the other. We wish him good luck. Go get him. And I don't know if you're following along in full or maybe just casually keeping your eye on St. John's native Alex Snook and his Colorado Avalanche. They really gave away a bad one last night. Up 3 nothing, end up losing in overtime, 5-4. St. Louis ties it up to Senate overtime with just less than a minute to go in the third period, so not great, but the Avs are still ahead in that particular series. Three games, 2-2. Two, two. All right, this is a bit more on the international sporting front, but you're hearing more and more voices join forces to call out Soccer Canada and their upcoming friendly against Iran, set for June in Vancouver. So while so many families are still reeling after the numbers of passengers killed, 176 passengers and crew members in flight P5752 when the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps shot down the, that particular plane and so many Canadians aboard. It's been referred to that Canada soccer making this decision to host Iran as, as repugnant. In addition to just the optics of the game, Soccer Canada paid Iranian soccer $400,000 to come to Canada to play the game on the 5th. Iran says they're going to profit from the game. So there's some controversy brewing on that front. It really seems completely ill-advised. But it's a curious state of affairs, isn't it? It used to be that people wanted more from their athletes, more from professional sports organizations, as opposed to just four-check, back-check, you know, work hard, 100%, 110%. And then all of a sudden, athletes start to speak their mind on political fronts, and then they were quickly told to shut up. Whether it be taking a knee or banning Russian and Belarusian athletes from a variety of uh, sporting events, it's just sort of strange stuff. I don't know where the soft spot is or the compromise might be, or the sweet spot, pardon me, not the soft spot, but it once was we wanted more from athletes, and now we want less. Kind of odd the way things roll out. Okay, stick with sports for a second, and this on the local scene. So much of the minor and amateur summer sporting uh, teams and games are underway. Not all, but many. It's always great to be able to give your son or daughter an opportunity to compete or just to even participate in some summer events, you know, whether it be at summer camp or, yes, organized sports. For some families, though, there's a real issue and a hurdle that they can't clear regarding cost. So the province did indeed bring forward a physical activity tax credit. It's up to uh, refundable tax credit up to $2,000 per family. 
But that doesn't address the fact that so many families simply do not have the wherewithal to register their child in one of these activities over their summer, which is a problem. Now, there are some sports are much more costly than others. So this one here, if it's a sport that uh, relies on cardio, uh, cardiorespiratory endurance, significant physical activity, uh, working on one or more of these components, muscular strength, muscular endurance, flexibility, and or balance. So we all know the big ones, you know, the hockey and soccer, but golf, horseback riding, sailing, bowling, there's a variety of things included. The registration and membership fees uh, can also cover administration, instruction, rental of facilities, uniforms and equipment, but not things like travel and food and stuff on the road. So it sounds like a really good play, but again, if I'm struggling to make ends meet now on a variety of fronts, given all the inflationary pressures and the cost of living issues, some families that maybe could scrape it together to put their child in an activity for the summer this year? Maybe not. So maybe upfront supports are something that we can make it more accessible to all. And I know not everyone cares about minor or amateur sports, but there's a variety of activities in there which is actually good for you. Lots of life lessons can be learned through sports, so you want to tackle it or take it on, we can do exactly that. A couple of interesting notes today in history. It was in 1956, so 66 years ago today. The Silent World, Le Monde de Silence. It's a French documentary directed by oceanographer Jacques Cousteau. So it was the first film documentary to use uh, underwater cinematography in color. There's so many mysteries still in the world's oceans. It actually went on to win the Palme d'Or Award at the Cannes Film Festival, only documentary to do so for some 50 years. And also some issues that emanate from south of the border that make their, their way into our political psyche and our social commentary. It was today in 2009, federal judge Sonia Sotomayor was nominated to be the first Hispanic judge, justice on the Supreme Court, nominated, of course, by then-President Obama. Okay. And we know what's happening with that particular court. It's pretty wild stuff. Let's move on. The Atlantic Mayor's Conference is being hosted in the town of Torbay, and some 17 mayors from around Atlantic Canada are sitting down to talk about some areas of potential collaboration and a variety of other issues. You know, whether people like it or not, by the look of it and the sounds of it, some move towards formal re regionalization is happening in this province. And we all know the, the stuttered start that it's had. Uh, members of the local service districts and their representatives were not included in the upfront working groups at MNL. They weren't members. And then there are still some other symposiums that have come and gone. LSD representatives not included in those. So the lack of detail and the concern with losing your identity and losing your ability to self-govern in one small community or another, that's where people have started the conversation. So there's been some examples, and I think some good ones. Lab City Wabush, they retain their identity as individual towns with their own governments, but have a cost share to reopen the Mike Adams Recreational Complex. And then the Conception Harbor issue, where you look at whether or not you can do away with waste uh, management contracts, amalgamate them, save some money, longer stretch of a contract. So there's examples. And baby steps where we can start, as opposed to, boom, draw a big line in one part of the province or another, say, this is your new county, this is your new region. So even if you're opposed and or in favor of, let's take it on. The municipalities and their 17 leaders will also be talking about COVID and, you know, it's not over yet, but the aftermath and what that means for communities. And also talking about Ukrainian refugees, immigrants in particular. And it's going to be an important component. Some provinces do much better than others in attracting and retaining immigrants. And look... So there's a story in the media and an associated video of what seems to be quite clearly 
a racism-based altercation between a full-grown man and three young teenage Muslim girls wearing hijabs. So eventually, the man slaps one of the young girls, I mean, the young girl, right in the face. So someone's already pushed back the email this morning and said, how do you know it's racism? Well, here's the, the basic question. Would this fella have stopped if there was three or four young white men or women, boys or girls, simply standing outside the restaurant where they work and they were on break? Unlikely. So his face is blurred in the image. I know why the news outlet chose to do that, but hopefully that person can be found. And look, it's not to say that we're inherently racist in the province or the country, but it does rear its ugly head far too often. If we're talking about the economic and societal upside of attracting newcomers to the province, these issues are extremely harmful. They just are. You want to talk about it, we can do it. But as it pertains to population growth, because deaths outweigh births in this province, and immigration will be one of the keys, and even if you think charity begins at home, there's a big upside to immigration. We all know it to be true. Well, many or most do. But also some campaigns that have been brought forward by other provinces to attract people to come and live and work there because they can do so remotely. They can work from home. The trend is irreversible at this point. There's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of a 15% global workforce trend up that are being people who once were going to the office and now are working from home. So I don't know if we've got a real formal glossy campaign like they do in the provinces of PEI in Nova Scotia, but that seems to me. Because if your concern is people coming here, unable to speak the language, unable to get a job, you know the deal and the pushback that we hear. Someone coming who's got a job and can simply on their laptop find affordable housing and work from home, be a contributing member to society as a taxpayer and otherwise, we should be working a little more aggressively on that front. And let's extend that conversation into what I also struggle with, and I'm sure many of you do as well, is trying to find some balance between work and other facets of life. Whether that be what they've done in some jurisdictions where you're not allowed as an employer to send out an email, a warning, a call to one of your employees after hours. You know, we all feel the pressure, right? So you don't want to be that employee who turns a deaf ear or a blind eye to emails at 10 o'clock while you're trying to uh, fade off to sleep because the go-getters usually have had a much easier and better time trying to move up the hierarchy chain. So what do we do? And even if you want to bring that to something I've tried to broach many times on the show is the concept of a four-day work week. It won't work for me, right? I've got a show five days a week. Maybe I could do something from home, but I don't want to. I like being in the studio. But the, every time a company tries it, the efficiency goes up, productivity goes up, or profitability goes up. There's something to be said for it, especially when people are struggling to try to find said balance. Anyway, you want to take it on? We can do it. All right. So it looks like there's going to be a pretty robust tourism season this year. And next week is National Tourism Week, and we'll try to focus a little brighter light on it. Marine Atlantic bookings, way up. Huge numbers coming across on Marine Atlantic. We hope they continue to keep their booking active, given some of the issues that we're all dealing with. We'll get to the price of gas now in a moment. But those who are considering traveling here or those of you listening to the program living in the province and traveling elsewhere, which I can't wait to do, some of the chaos at Canada's major airports is ridiculous. There's so many people who don't really know some of the vaccination requirements as they enter the country and then the questions randomly asked by border security agents. 
it's just not working. We don't have enough border officials. The federal government is talking about it, even though some people have told me the feds have told airlines to stop some of their flights, which is not true. But, you know, some of the associations, whether it be the uh, Canadian Independent Travel Advisors, they're advising their clients to tell passengers to arrive at airports like Toronto's Pearson four hours before your flight. Ugh. So that's going to be a real problem for those flying. And, of course, the frustration likely to bubble up. But be forewarned if part of your turnaround is in Toronto. But there's the question. Like when I fly coming up and have to go to Toronto and make a connection, what happens? And so if you've been traveling and you see what's happening, give us some illumination as to what even just catching your connecting flight looks like. And then I've heard from many people who have arrived here at St. John's International Airport and very few cabs to be had and extraordinarily long waits simply to get a taxi. Where you think the taxis, knowing that a big 737 lands or a 777 or the 787 Dreamliner, you know there's lots of fares coming out the door, so if you want to talk about it, we can do it. And yeah... It's hard to know how much faith to put in the prognostication about the price of fuels, the general Wednesday evening uh, jack-up or reduction that happens on Thursday, even though we know the PUBs use the interruption formula repeatedly in the last several months. People thought gas was going down a cent or so. No, up just about four cents, 3.9 cents. I don't know, like I get a bit of sneak peek at some of this stuff. I'm told that it's embargoed and I'm not supposed to put it out loud, but I tell you what, I am struggling with that too because I'd love to be able to tell you. Hey, someone told you it's going down a cent. It's not. It's going up 3.9. Now, 3.9 might not be all and end all for some, but for many, they're keeping a close eye on these things. So up goes gas. Not a whole lot of move on the other fuels, but yeah. And then we know the PUB is going to have to be more transparent via legislative amendments and the Petroleum Pricing Act. But again... Knowing how the recipe is made doesn't make the outcome any tastier, so there's got to be some more conversation about what can and should be done. And so moving on, come by chance. So, yeah, a lot of people, I don't think you're wrong, talking about that additional five cents that goes to Silver Peak for the importation and distribution of gasoline in particular, you're not wrong. But an issue that was decided by the province's Information and Privacy Commissioner, Michael Harvey, it's about what is a taxpayer-backed environmental indemnity at Combi Chance. When the new company came in, Texas-based Cresta Fund Management, they, of course, have converted Combi Chance into a uh, biodiesel, f- uh, pardon me, a, uh, they call it Brea Renewable Fuels, Renewable Diesel and Sustainable Aviation Fuel. Okay, so we do know that there's pre-existing conditions at the refinery site. It's capped at $180 million, but the Privacy Commissioner says we can indeed have a look at this. So let's see. Oh, someone wants to talk about comments I made about the attack on the girl. We'll see what that lady has to say before too long. So the third party in this case said that the MOU was required to be protected from disclosure in order to protect business interest. They have 10 days to file an appeal with the Newfoundland and Labrador Supreme Court, but we can get a look at that report. It would be nice if Michael Harvey was the adjudicator of whether or not we should see any report, any of them. Rothschild on down, which still is a... Be in my bonnet that we can't have a look at that one. Okay, and Mr. Harvey has also said that the pay remuneration report for former employees at St. John Sports and Entertainment can be withheld for now, calling it a fluid situation and it may indeed be addressed in the near future. Okay, let's get on to some healthcare issues. I saw this tweet. I won't put the lady's name out there. I mean, I know she released this info publicly, but I'll leave it there for now. She says, 
Hey to the Premier and the Minister of Health Community Services, John Haggy. I am currently on day six, sitting in the emergency room with my dad. Central Health. No beds to move him upstairs. No room to make for others laying in the hallways. I'm here. First hand. Guess what? There was a major health care crisis in the province. Six days. I remember seeing my father on a gurney in a hallway. Infuriating and heartbreaking at the exact, exact same time. So I hope that we'll see some of these unbelievably sad issues resolved knowing that how many of those beds in Central are being occupied by people who are medically able to be discharged but don't have a place to go because of the deficiencies and the cost overruns and the schedule of being obliterated in the two new 60 bed long term care homes, one in Gander, one in Grand Falls, Windsor. Hopefully this lady has her dad up into a room, admitted into an actual room as opposed to in an emergency room or in a hallway. Boy, oh boy, this stuff just boils the blood. So, and I will throw this in there again. For those who are waiting for a bed in long-term care and unable to be discharged for that bed, what is going on with that fee that they're being charged? I believe it's $39 a day off the top of my head. So six weeks or something, in addition to the time you spent in hospital recovering, some of those bills, I believe to be patently unfair and should be addressed. What do you think you want to talk about? We can do it. And I don't know how closely you're following the Conservative Party of Canada leadership race. Their last official debate was held last night. It was in French, so I did not watch it, but I did read about it. And so focusing on the obvious, you know, inflation and the trucker's convoy as opposed to clear focus on mandates, the trucker convoy and Bitcoin and up and down the line. If you'd like to chime in on where you stand on the CPC race, we're happy to take that on. And yesterday we told you about Rotary East and they are asking people to uh, donate their scooters or bicycles that are no longer of use or the children have outgrown them or the adults just has a new bike. And apparently that's gone very well after the call, so you can continue to tune in, or pardon me, to check in with Rotary East if you have said scooter or bicycle that you'd like to donate to them to be repurposed. And it comes with a helmet, too, which is also very good news. And also, one more, I would like to put this out there for my, uh, my friend Shannon Lewis Simpson. Coming up, uh, the first CBS Scout group will be having a recycling drive at Rona parking lot from 10 to 12 on Saturday. At the same time, there'll be a Kent and Sobeys and CBS with uh, Scout trees. They'll have tree seedlings available by donation. These activities are raising money to send the big uh, send the, the crew to the Big Scout Jamboree in June. So there's a couple of things you might want to get up to. All right, we're on Twitter. There, and there's lots to discuss. Of course, if I don't bring it up and it's something that interests you, you do me a solid and bring it up on the show. We're a VOCM open line on the Twitter box. We're also taking your emails. It's open line at VOCM.com. And here's our tunage choice for today. It's back in 1967. The Hollies released the single Carry On. When we come back, let's carry on. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Very quickly, I want to say thanks to Todd up in Labrador City sent along this piece of info. He says, Mr. Daly, call me Patty. Wrongly said that Lab City Wabush have agreed to cost share the recreational complex, so I guess they have an agreement with principle yet to be consummated thank you todd let's go to begin the show this morning on line number three good morning kathy you're on the air hi patty um my first time calling into the show but i just wanted to thank you so much this morning for the comments you made about the uh, young women who were attacked outside mary brown's because they were wearing hijabs and they're not white skinned um they're close friends of mine i've known them since they were eight and ten when they first came to canada and i've seen them grow into uh, excuse me if i cry because it's been very emotional 
I've seen them grow into amazing young women over that time. Strong, proud to be Canadian. I was there when they took their oath of citizenship. When they wanted to go public with this story, um, I was so worried about the backlash they would face because we know how some people react to Muslims because they've heard so much misinformation out there about who Muslims are, what they represent. Uh, People don't understand. They don't see them as people like us. And even anyone with a brown skin, we just somehow can't see them as people like us. So when I heard what you said today... um, I was so heartened to know that that there are people in the media and in influential parts of the media that know how to present these things. And it'll mean the world to these girls because they, um, you know, we've all heard about Malala in, yep. in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And I, long before this, these girls have done things that have made me feel this is these are our young Malalas. We have Malalas among, among us. She's um, extraordinary. I heard her speak in New York uh, one time. Um, you know, here's the unfortunate side of this. I immediately got some pushback that says, how do you know and why do people always say that this is racism? Well, let's just be intellectually honest here. If if this person is a chronic nuisance and asks every person standing outside of any building or any restaurant or uh, any office that, what are you doing here, whatever nonsense he was getting on with, then that's one thing. But I think pretty clearly a full-grown man, three young girls wearing hijabs, I think we can say pretty safely that this only happened because they were three young girls wearing hijabs. And then he goes on to smack one of them in the face. This is, we should Mm -hmm. not tolerate any of this. Even if it didn't come down to a smack, a physical altercation, these types of things are just detrimental to society. You can have your own Mm -hmm. personal issue with other religions and think that everybody who is of the Muslim faith is some sort of jihadi, which is once again completely and utterly ridiculous. Why don't you keep it to yourself? If you'd like to yeah. v- vote mm-hmm. and talk about government policy and, you know, uh, supports for and all these types of things surrounding immigration and safety vetting, then do it in an adult mature, uh, r- realistic fashion as opposed yes, to these exactly. types of altercations. It's just but not Peter, acceptable. Patty, sorry about that, Patty. Um, I can shed a bit of light on some of this because obviously in any news story it's quite short, you know. So if people want to know whether or not this was a racist attack, I was with the girls the morning after this happened. They, they had emailed me immediately. Uh, that night and somehow I missed the text um, so the next day they gave me the story and, I, and, and I've checked out the details with them and I, these girls are honest as the day is long anyway here's how it happened as they've told me they were taking their break at Mary Brown's it was 9 o'clock at night there were three of them they were st- had you know were standing just outside um, the door of Mary Brown's on their break um, a man was walking down Torbay Road. This was on Torbay Road. If you've ever been to the Mary Brown's Diner on Torbay Road, you can see there's quite a distance between the sidewalk and where they were standing. This man was walking down the road from the Irving Station, I believe. He looked over. He saw three women. We have no idea. He was not a customer at Mary Brown's. We have no idea why he then crossed the parking lot went up to three women who happened to be wearing hijabs and happened to have slightly darker skin than you or I, uh, called them the N-word, called them black, 
said, why are you speaking? They were speaking in Arabic to each other, even though they speak perfect English, but they do speak in Arabic to each other sometimes. He said, why are you speaking like that? Why are you speaking like that? What is that you're saying? I may get a couple of the, the details wrong. So he was confronting them. The other thing you need to know about this story, the girls are four foot nothing. They're tiny. I have measured them every year um, uh, in my house when the kids would come because I've known the whole family. There's six of them. They're amazing. I would measure them. And I measured them recently. And poor Malik, who's the one strongest personality, both of them have the strongest personality, but she's tiny. And when I look at the full video and I see this guy, he's looming over these, these young women who are tiny. They're children. 18, 15 years old, small, defenseless, calling them the N-word, saying they're, you know, using black in a pejorative way, talking about why they're speaking a different language. And then he says things like, why are you here? Why are you here? Now, I don't know if he meant, why are you outside Mary Brown's? Why are you working at Mary Brown's? Or why are you in Canada? Why are you in Newfoundland? I don't know. None of his business on all fronts. Exactly. The girls, being the amazing girls they are, did not run away from him. They should have for their own safety, obviously. But they, they started to argue and try to tell him why they're here and that he had no right to call them these things. Then he, he went to hit Asmahan and the other woman who was with Asmahan. He, he approached. Malik is the defender of the family. She got between them to prevent him from assaulting her sister and the other woman, their friend. Then he came after Malik, and you can see in the video, you'll see it tonight on CBC, he pushed Malik, who again is well under five feet, pushed her so that she almost fell to the ground with a hard shove. She punched him. Little girl that she is, she's a big woman in her in her personality, but physically very tiny. She she reacted to protect herself from another attack as he was coming at her again. So, you know, I think people and they still stood their ground. They still tried to tell him that he was wrong. And here's the thing Malik said to me that first morning when the first time she was telling the story. She said, Kathy, the thing that upset me the most was that he was a Newfoundlander, she said. I didn't think Newfoundlanders would do something like that. She said, all the Newfoundlanders I've met have been kind and good to us, and they've helped us become Canadians. And that was the thing that bothered her. And, you know, again, I try to couch my comments as, you know, I'm not trying to be overly careful, but I want to be fair, is that... It might not be rampant, but it might be. See, these are the questions. and It's not every time that something like this happens that it gets recorded and reported. You know full well there are casual references that maybe no one even talks about after the fact, but it still is rooted in absolute abhorrent racism. So... Let's just try to be better. Let's try to understand who people are. Like we even talk about it in school. Even if it's someone who's different from you, they're on the spectrum or they have ADHD or they have a behavioral issue or they're from Africa or they're from the Middle East. When we have people willing to understand who you are, what you're like, 
what you're about, what your hopes are, what your aspirations are, you know, about your family, then we can probably have conversations to acknowledge that. If we were all the same, it would be the most boring place on the face of the earth. Knowing that we've got a diversity that we can understand, embrace, and talk about can make things so much more manageable. We've got historical context being applied to modern-day immigrants. It just doesn't make any sense. You know, remove the fact that we've got a full-grown man and three little girls, or three young women. You know, we, we just don't take any time to even have a, a base conversation about who you are. And I make this point all the time, and I get in a lot of pushback negativity aimed at me because of it, and I couldn't care less. I will ask this honest question. How do you, as someone who's just out walking or shopping, uh, evaluate if someone is an immigrant? And I think, by and large, unless you hear them speak, we go by whether or not you look like us. So someone who is uh, brown or black or Asian, you could see them and think right off the bat, immigrant, when in fact they could be here for a couple of generations. You see someone that could be from Berlin or Dublin or London walking through the Avalon Mall, and you don't even give it this time of day because they look a lot like us, So, or look like the white members of society in Newfoundland Labrador. So let's just, you know, think about who people are, what they're all about, what they're into, where some of our, our, yeah. our mm-hmm. common overlaps will be, our similarities, mm-hmm. the likes and movies and sports, like whatever. But we don't take the time to do that, and I think it pulls us all back. I think so, too. And and the other thing I'd like people to know um, is that even after this, like, you know, obviously those of us who are friends of the family and friends of the girls, we were very upset and you get very angry when this happens to young people because afraid of, you know, their physical safety, apart from the racism aspect, just that any, any young women could be treated this way is abhorrent, you know. But even after all of this, the girls say says, I don't care if he goes to jail. I just want to know why he did this. I want them to find him so we can find out why somebody would do something like this. And you'll hear Asmahan say that tonight when she says, she says, did you have a bad day? You know, are you going through something? Like, why would somebody do something like this? And why would a Newfoundlander do something like this? So these girls are not motivated by hate in, or revenge in any way, shape, or form. Well, I'm glad you called this morning. Kathy is a first-time caller. And pass along my hello and best wishes to the family. Great. Thank you very much, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. Yeah, and look, again... You can disagree with me all you like, and that's just part of this game, this business. And send along via email or otherwise uh, and call me out that I'm trying to make everything about racism. I'm trying to divide society. No, we're talking about what happens, the realities of life, and trying to have open, honest, mature, adult discussions about what we see right in front of our face. That's all. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Robert, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about you? Good. Lovely day. So, Patty, this past Saturday, um, we are home at the house, and uh, it was a beautiful sunny day, as you know, and um, we just thought, you know, maybe we should go for a ride on a motorcycle, go over to Cox's Cove in the Bay of Islands, and uh, probably get a plate of fries or, or have a pizza or something over there. And uh, so we, we we got the bike ready and jumped on the bike, got all of our other gear on and stuff. It was a beautiful day. Didn't need leather, though, just the same. So we're driving along on the North Shore Highway, you know, just uh, taking in the teens and that kind of stuff. He's just dodging along inside of a community. And out of nowhere... Literally, out of nowhere, I see this pylon on the side of the road. And when you see a pylon, Patty, I don't know about you, but I think shoulder, bad shoulder, you know. Um, 
I don't know if you agree with that or not. Well, I, I can't argue against it because, you know, there's something coming, but it could be anything from a moon crater to a soft shoulder. Who knows what you're getting yourself into at that point. Yeah. Right. So I'm cresting this blind hill, and I see the, t- I, I see the pylon. And, all right, so, I mean, that, that's okay. So I, I slow down a little bit, and out of nowhere, about 15 feet in front of me, there's this ga- gaping full-lane pothole. Full lane, taking up the whole entire lane, and I hit it, doing about 40, 50 kilometers an hour. And my wife, I, when I hit the brakes, of course, I, I, I locked up the bike, and I went down into the hole. And, I mean, this thing is, like, literally 12 feet wide and probably six or 12 feet long and 6 feet wide, like the whole lane. And I locked the brakes up. You can hear the bike screeching. And I, I, I scream, oh, my God. And she's... She, when I hit the hit pothole, of course, she landed. She pretty well landed on top of my shoulders because the bike. When I locked the bike up, you know, she her, her force brought her forward. And of course, when she came down, she hurt her neck and back. And uh, I, I proceeded and, and turned around, and went back, and uh, checked on her and pulled pulled the bike over. And I did a video. And so Tuesday morning, I said, you know, I I, I did the video and I, I narrated a little bit about you know what happened, and I posted on Facebook. And like I, I agree that the province is behind, and there's there's no money and blah blah blah, you know, with the government and all that stuff. But at the same time, this is not this is not about you know fixing any old pothole. This this pothole is like the full lane, and it's on a blind hill. It's got to be prioritized. And so Tuesday morning, I called the Department of Transportation over here in Deer Lake, and I was told I was going to get a call back from superintendent. So that was uh, that was Tuesday morning. Uh, so yesterday. Um, I, I sent the gentleman that gave me a text and told me that the superintendent indeed was going to call me. Yesterday, uh, about 2 o'clock, I sent him a text and said, you know, I hadn't heard from the gentleman. And uh, and right to the, up to this point, I haven't heard from the gentleman. Now, I'm not a fellow that, that, that spreads around negative negativity at all. Like, if you ever read my Facebook post, it's all about positivity and, and smiling and being happy and sharing joy and, you know, positive, all positive vibrations. Uh, but this is a this is not really a negativity story. This is more of a, a safety issue. Uh, and how many more? I mean, I had 13,000. I've got. I looked at it right while I was waiting to come on the show. I got like just about 14,000 views in that video now, and something like 200 shares. Uh, and I mean, it's it's. All we're asked the province to do, the Department of Transportation to do, really is just drive around. I mean, the local MHAs. They see that there's there's issues, and I mean they they should be picking up the phone and calling and saying, hey, listen, this 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 issue right here has got to be dealt with because it's it's not safe. If there was a vehicle coming in the other direction, like at the same time I hit that pothole, I had nowhere to go. It could have been a really bad outcome. Uh, and I mean I've had people, friends of mine that were injured. I've had friends of mine killed on motorcycles, and not because of speed, just because of you know the situations that they were in. Um, and you know, like I don't know. I, I just wanted to call and, and let you let you know about this, and I, I think something has should be done. Well, a couple of things, uh, Robert. Uh- we don't need to feel like we have to let the government off the hook there because, you know, we're in a terrible financial situation, debt and deficit up and down the line, because the sole reason for gas tax in this province, the original argument was money to come in the door to pay for road work, bridges, and the like. We bring in way more gas tax revenue than we spend annually on road work. So if the gas tax is for that, 
then they've got the money. They've made right. some pragmatic moves with early tenders and that kind of stuff, allow the paving companies to crew up and to have, you know, make sure we maximize the paving season or the roadwork season. So they have the money, and they also know about this crater. Without question, they do, because you weren't the only person to see it. You weren't the only person to take a video or a picture and complain to the department or the local depot. So these issues here, sometimes we focus in on what it meant for beating up my rims and the like, but this becomes an absolute safety issue. Safety first. You may indeed have buckled up the forks on your motorcycle, but if you had to flick the wife off the back of the bike into the ditch and got hurt, it's a safety matter. So oftentimes we talk about, well, I beat up my rims. That's that's a problem, and that's unfortunate. But if it can create, say, even even if it wasn't just hitting the pothole and dumping yourself off the motorcycle, what happens when there's a car trying to crest that blind hill and tries to dodge the pylon on the crater, and the next thing you know, we've got a collision on the highway. So that's, I think that's the most emphatic way to start these fix the bloody potholes. You know, little potholes we can maybe manage. Craters that encompass an entire lane, totally unacceptable and unmanageable for the motoring public. Right. And maybe I'm just being too nice, you know, Pat, about, you know, about letting the government off the hook because I ran, I ran last year in the Bay of Bonds as an MHA. And, uh, and I mean, I've seen some, I, I cried a lot of tears. I, I laughed a lot of, you know, I had a lot of smiles. And I heard a lot of great stories. And, uh, you know, that experience was, was, was totally joyful. And, uh, you know, when, when, when this kind of stuff happens, it, it really, you know, and, and I mean, I've I rode a motorcycle, you know, for the last 30 years. And I mean, the roads in this province, you know, in, in regards to the gas tax, the roads in this province is just being ignored. You know, ignored totally, um, especially around the, the the bays, the Bay of Islands, down around. You know, Rocky Arbor's okay because they got the Grossmont Park down there, so they get prioritized with federal money. Uh, but I mean, you know, around like if you if you go to Bayvert, like I went to Bayvert two years ago on motorcycle, I'll never go back again. It is just amazing. It's one pothole from the highway to Bayvert, and now we have you know we have Ramblin mines out there, we have Anaconda mines out there. There's an economic impact being made out there, and it depends on the roads. And I mean, the safety is, is, is first and foremost, you know, but I mean, how, how bad has it got to come to before someone gets killed? Like my father got killed in 1983, but hit by a train and, you know, at a, at a, at a train station, train, train crossing, and it was a private train crossing. After that, every private train crossing had a stop sign, you know, um, oh my. It's, it's, a, it's a little too late to be reactive. You know, like whatever happened to proaction in this province, and that's what's really pissing me off about this whole old deal here. Now let's get to the real truth. Is like there's nobody being nobody being proactive enough to look at these things and say, okay, we have to prioritize this, this, and this, and this. If there's only so much money going around, fix the safety issues first. Yeah, uh, that's an extraordinary story about your father. Of course, that, that never that pain never goes away. So yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, but you know I don't want to be a statistic because like. My father got killed accidentally. I mean, Saturday could have been a real, a real bad situation, and my two kids and my stepdaughters left alone. You know, that's not cool, Pat. That's really not cool. You know, and I, mean, I, I went that night. I went home, and I was, I was clearly shaken that night when I went home. I, I said to my wife, "Is I got a good mind to sell the bike?" You know, because I mean, you know, if if it's, if it's coming down to you can't, you know, get on your motorcycle or your car. I mean, there's been pe- vehicles. People just told me since I did that video that there's been vehicles hit it and and near misses. You know, like hit it and then it came out the other end and just fished down or you know you're all over the road. Especially in the winter time, it wasn't so bad. One fellow said to me, "In the winter time, wasn't so bad. We never really thought about it." And this pothole has been there now for nearly. One person said to me over a year. It's been like that for over a year. They put a little bit of coal patch in it because it's on the crest of a hill. It gets pounded up pretty quick, and and then the problem's back there again. So I mean, like you said, fix the bloody hole. Pretty much, and you know, one of the big business opportunities in the province might be making pothole head signs. Robert, I appreciate your time this morning, sir. I'm glad you and your wife are okay. 
Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. All right, uh, let's go ahead and uh, appreciate the patience of those remaining in the queue. When we come back, we'll be speaking with you. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back to the show. Let's go line number seven, I'm told. Uh, good morning, Larry. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. You mentioned in your preamble some things about uh, problems with how this regionalization is being rolled out. And I just wanted to pick up where I left off the last time I spoke with you. Uh, I can speak uh, very clearly to <clears throat> what you referenced about inclusion because we've been trying to be included f since day one of spinning wheels ever since. Right, which we've had this discussion, okay. Yeah, and as, as I've pointed out to the minister, the problem that you have here is that if you don't include people from the beginning, you're going to fail in this process. Uh, because what you're doing right now is you're breeding fear and mistrust. Because people have no say. Um, <clears throat> what we've been offered as an alternative is to provide submissions to an email address at the department. We get no feedback none and as I keep pointing out if we don't have feedback this can't work right if I see something that I can offer as constructive criticism to assist this process and I don't know if anybody's listening I don't know if anybody's heard what I've said I don't know if anybody thinks that's a good point or a bad one where are we well, I think I'll probably say something very similar to what I said last time to this legitimate concern. It's incumbent upon the minister. If Minister Howell says that this is coming, this is going to happen, with all of the unknowns and the unanswered questions, it's now her complete and obvious responsibility to bring people together to ask to ask the questions and to give some answers, give some guidance, because now we've got people who simply have rejected it in full, out of hand. No details, So lots of misunderstandings out there about what it might mean. Level of taxation and provision of uh, equal services, water, sewer, whatever people want to talk about. When in fact, there's going to be 25, if they stick with that number of 25 different regions, there's going to be 25 different setups. So until the members of communities that will be in one region or another know what they're getting themselves into, of course, human nature is going to say, well, I'm not interested because not many of us are interested in the great unknown. And, and I'll just give you a, like a good example, uh, Patty. Uh, the, the report from the Joint Working Group mentions fair and equitable taxation, and it references it several times. And that's difficult enough to wrap your head around. But then the minister and her department post that same premise on their website in their question and answer section on regionalization. So <clears throat> they're operating from a premise that somebody's not paying their fair share. And it's obviously somebody who's not paying property tax, like somebody who's living in an LSD. Now, my question is, what am I going to pay property tax? What am I going to get for it? Because right now in the city of St. John's, you pay property tax, and you pay water and sewer tax. Your property tax 
goes to pay for city infrastructure other than water and sewer. Well, I pay a water tax. There's not a distinct standalone sewer tax, but I know what you're talking about. Anyway, go ahead. Yes. Um, Some towns have water and sewer tax. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) you pay for municipal infrastructure other than water and sewer or water. You pay for the operation of your city council. You pay for municipal buildings, municipal property. Uh, depots, whatever. <clears throat> the only infrastructure somebody living in an LSD has is a fire station, and we pay a tax for that. We pay a water tax, we pay a fire tax, the rest we are responsible for ourselves. It's right? a good point there, Larry, because the unfortunate reality is not every community or setup is like that. We've had stories where there's been a house burnt to the ground, a family left without a home because they didn't have fire coverage. So these are little things that are actually, I think, the baby steps towards understanding what might be of a benefit. Because in some of these communities, unless you get 100% buy-in to pay a fee to the next, uh, the closest fire station, then the entire town is left without it, or the entire community is left without fire coverage. This, that's actually a really good example of what might be a clear upside for some spots in the province. Plus, no one has said everyone's got to pay the exact same property tax if they don't get the same services. We actually they have a disparity. They don't now. Well, there's nothing every th- town in this province, <laughs> if you own a property of $500,000, you don't pay the same property tax. You don't pay the same municipal fees. Gander, is, Gander has a $450 water fee. Yours is, I think, $650. The point is, is that the reality, once again, is that it's coming. And so, you know, someone repeatedly I've been told, I'm not paying more taxes for services I won't get. But nobody has clearly said that that's what's going to happen just because of this move towards regional cooperation or collaboration or partnerships or cost share, because it's not going to be the same thing everywhere. So I don't dispute your point that if you can't get any answers, then why would you be willing to just move forward and blindly trust any entity, including the government. So I, you and I are on the exact same page there. But I think there's going to be examples where small partnerships are going to be beneficial to all. And nobody has said that everyone's all of a sudden going to pay the same property tax because they're in a region and get no additional services. Like, that's not even part of the report. No, but that's not my point. My what point is your point, is, My point is, why am I going to pay property tax if we don't have infrastructure to support, like, a town hall? But that's what I just said. what yours does, Right. All of our work is done from people's homes as volunteers. We don't have a town office. We don't, you know, property tax, what's property tax going to do, right? What's it going to pay for? It pays for everything that the community provides as their municipal responsibility. Water and fire services, which we pay for. I pay for my own sewer. I pay for my own street light, right? And, and, And just let me, let me move on from there for a second because... I want to deal with something that's probably much more important. We have had legislation that approves the operation of regional service boards in this province since 1990. We have four operating in the province right now. One of them is Eastern Regional. There are eight powers outlined in that act that regional service boards can be mandated to provide. Right now, they have only a few because the minister has to provide them additionally, right? The minister has to say, right now, boards in this province are limited by the minister, not by the act, but by the minister in what 
they're mandated to do. And I'll just give you one example. <clears throat> Under that section of the Act, the minister has given the Eastern Regional Service Board mandate to provide solid waste, solid waste management on the Avalon Peninsula, basically, a little towards Clarenville. Right now, they only provide solid waste management to 25% of the households in this province, in this region, right? The other 75% are provided by towns and cities themselves. The only major town on the Avalon that I know of that has Eastern provide its waste management is Carboneer. The smaller municipalities do, yes. But the most major towns and cities, CBS, St. John's, whoever, they, they do it themselves. So we talk about this regional cooperation, this economy of scale. Like, I don't see it even now. So how are you going to do it now? If you've got four regional service boards, how are you going to do it now with 25? Right? Well, uh, last word, because it's uh, four minutes after 10, is I, I'm always at a loss as to why something can work elsewhere, but we pretend it can't work here. And we do it all the time. So if there's a best practice that can be of benefit to you where you live, then let's see how it works. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about the pros and cons. Let's talk about associated costs and how they would be divided. But I guess it's the problem with how this all started, because when you get off on the wrong foot, it's hard to recover. And that's exactly where we find ourselves in this regionalization conversation. And even inside incorporated municipalities, there's going to come a time, given what we see with the age of the population, young families, deaths versus births, at some point, we are going to be forced to cooperate financially because we're not going to have the required tax base for the basic provision of services. So that's coming. And we all know it to be true. So even if we just try to get out in front of it so it's not chaotic and we're expensive than it need be, it doesn't mean that we flip a switch and all of a sudden the 25 regions are up and running and everything's hunky-dory, we're off to the races. None of that means that, but that's where the minister has got to play a more active role in talking directly to your concerns because they're fair and legitimate. Uh, Larry, I'll give you the last word before I have to go to the news. That's the problem, Patty. It's like Benjamin Franklin said, by pre failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. This can work. Everybody wants a plan that works. You can't sure. do it if everybody's not on board. Larry, always appreciate your time. Thanks for this. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Still tons of time, obviously, left to speak with you. And we appreciate the patience of those in the queue. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. All right, let's roll. Line number four. Greg, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Um, it's a very interesting show this morning. I loved what Kathy was saying, or I didn't like what she was saying, but it was very, very moving. And uh, um, I'm calling in about another emotional topic, actually, for me especially. Uh, you know, I was talking to you about a month ago. A woman came on talking about her son who was gay and being persecuted by his church and the congregation and how distressed they were about it. And uh, I don't know if you remember that call. I do indeed. And she was supportive of the child, of course, like you would be, your own flesh and blood. That's right. That's right. After that call, I received a phone call from the minister of Botwood United Church, uh, Trinity United Church in Botwood, uh, James Martin Carter, inviting me out there to speak to his congregation on Pride Sunday, June the 6th. 
And um, I've accepted his invitation. And it's a big day for them. They celebrate Pride Day in that congregation. And they're unveiling a mural. And I'm going to be the guest speaker. And I'm going to talk about a lot of the things I talked about on your show and a lot of other things, too, to try to help our lesbian, gay, transsexual, uh, and bisexual youth who are being persecuted in Christian churches by Christian congregations. Because I feel, and I, uh, I want to talk to Christians in specific, because I feel that Christians have misread and misunderstood the Bible to suit their own prejudices, not God's. But God is not homophobic. And I want to talk about how Christianity has suppressed the mission of Jesus to women. The mission of Jesus is a gender-equal mission, gender-neutral. And by suppressing that and suppressing women in the church, it has led to every possible perversion in Christianity. It's led to the suppression of children and suppression of gays and all that sort of thing. So those are the themes I want to talk about. And I want to talk about the most famous same-sex love story in the Bible, in the Old Testament, with one of the most famous people in the Bible. So it's a good news story that I'm going to be uh, giving out there on on uh, on, su- on Sunday, June the fifth, and I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to the Bible with my homo highlighter, and it's going to be a different Bible. But it's the same Bible. It's just stuff that we haven't seen that's been suppressed in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. It's not homophobic, and it's a great story. So that's what I'm going to be going out to um, Botwood to talk about. There's clear and, uh, references to homosexuality painted on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Um, yes. <laughs> just, just let me ask you this question, and I'm trying to be fair with this one, but yeah. doesn't it possibly perpetuate the problem if we're trying to tie biblical references in a 2,000-year-old book not adopted by all to be the basis of faith and the basis of your moral compass or what have you, as opposed to what's actually happening in the modern-day world? So I h- hope you understand that question. You know, highlighting things in the Bible the pushback will be highlighting other things in the Bible, and then all of a sudden we're at Bible standoff as opposed to what we see in our communities. No, I don't think we will be. I I try to avoid that pitfall in in, in what I'm saying. Uh, I'm saying let Jesus be your guide to the Bible. Uh, That's what I'm saying, and I'm saying why that people should do uh, I'm speaking really. I want to debunk uh, you know, the prejudice towards homosexuals in Christian terms for Christians and say that it is not part of the Bible in spite of the fact that the Bible in Leviticus or Deuteronomy says it's a sin uh, to have a same-sex relationship. That is not the Bible's ultimate conclusion by any means. And there are many, many rules in the Bible, as we know, that no one can possibly live by. Well, so of course that, not. I mean, you know, a polycotton blend, all of a sudden, I'm a sinner. Um, yeah. So I went to Catholic boys' school all the way through grade 12. And some of the most, I don't know, appropriate or memorable teachings was this very simple question that you could ask yourself is, what would Jesus do? And I don't think Jesus would do a lot of the discriminatory and uh, second-class citizen and mockery that we see from some corners. And I'm always careful to have this conversation as a, uh, a wide-sweeping generalization, that because not everyone's the same, regardless of your faith, your color of your skin, your country of origin, which is mm-hmm. p- kind of what we were talking about with Kathy. Is, you know, mm-hmm. don't pretend yeah. we're all the same, because it's simply not true, regardless yeah. if you're from Afghanistan or for come by chance. So, yeah. you know, those are the tricky ones. If What would Jesus do is a pretty solid question. If you're, if you're a person of faith, if you're not, then, of course, you ask whatever of your own spirituality or morality or whatever. 
That's right. That's right. It, 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 what would Jesus do as a Googler? People say, what would Jane Austen do? You know, people use their hero. Well, Jesus is one of my heroes, and I uh, I use him as a, a moral touchstone. And uh, I, I think you're right. I don't think Jesus could possibly participate in that persecution. When you look at the, the suffering youth out there on the verge of suicide, and you look at the, the people saying that, you know, God doesn't love you, God hates you because you love another man or you love another woman, you know, do you really think, who who do you think Jesus is standing with in that situation? Is he standing with the suffering youth, or is he standing with the self-righteous condemner, persecutor? You know I mean? It's impossible that he could participate. And because of his own lifestyle and his own loves and his own, the people in his life that he loved, it would not be possible for him to do that. The, the ancient world, before the year 1000, was not homophobic. It was that that wasn't an issue in the ancient world, homophobia. Uh, it wasn't part of the Jewish reality. There were male prostitutes at the temple, so many male and female prostitutes working around the temple that the priests had to debate what to do about the income from the male prostitutes and would they accept it for blood sacrifices and all that sort of thing, and they decided that they wouldn't. But, you know, in the whole history of the Bible, which is pretty detailed, no one has ever been punished for a homosexual act, and it's quite the reverse. And I want to show you how it's the reverse and how the Bible actually celebrates homosexuality. Uh, so that's, uh, I mean, it's, it's amazing to me when I read what was in the Bible that has not been seen or that what I didn't see before. And that's, those are the things that I want to talk about because that's the stuff that's caused us all the problems since by suppressing these amazing stories in the Bible that will give great comfort to our lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender youth out there. Someone, and, um, oh, pardon me, I'm sorry. sorry. Yeah, I just wanted to say that that's going to be on Pride Sunday, and it's going to be live streamed. So anyone who can't attend can live stream it from Trinity United Church, and they can watch the whole event. So I, I just want to put that out there to all gay, you know, LBGTQ um, youth and anyone else who's interested in homosexuality or sex in, in the Bible and all of that whole issue, um, that's, you can, you can hear the full talk. But I'm sorry to interrupt you. What were you going to say? Uh, I was just going to summarize by, you know, by saying the Pride Week, Pride Month, and people will question as to why it's important. Why do we need to talk about it? Well, we need to talk about it because people have been treated as less than and or as a scourge when... Mm -hmm. If you know, and this is not about white guilt or Catholic guilt, and the Catholic Church is also under attack. It's not about any of those things. It's about the fact that well, here, here's a good example. I have a listener and a frequent emailer mm -hmm. who obviously thinks about this a lot because most mm -hmm. of the emails are about this. And he's saying, "Here comes Pride celebrations," and mm -hmm. he's trying to make the issue surrounding monkeypox. He says, well, if this is all about gay and bisexual men have had sex with men, and that's what they've brought uh, onto society again as this monkeypox, just imagine, that's exactly why we need Pride Week. Because when people stray down those roads to point fingers of blame, fingers of hate, or to ostracize because of someone's sexual orientation, we find ourselves in a societal standoff. Just imagine, yeah. here comes Pride to acknowledge and to understand that many members of community are exactly of that sexual orientation. 
Mm-hmm. And there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with it. And, you know, I, and I saw some quips coming from one of the, I didn't watch the show, Bill Maher, talk about just how many more people now are all of a sudden trans or gay or bi. Mm-hmm. What happened? You know, have we taken away man out of society? Well, how about this, Bill and others? Now that it's becoming more and more obviously and justifiably acceptable to be who you are, as okay. opposed to toiling and hiding and suffering in the shadows, that's why more people are coming out, because we're thankfully, gradually, making Making it easier to be that person, be who you are. Exactly, Patty. There has always been transgendered people. Of there has. Lots, lots of homosexuals through history. I mean, you would be surprised at the people in history who are actually homosexuals. You know, who were homosexual. It's it's astonishing. Uh, and and like I say, that it, it wasn't a homophobic world before. You know, before the year twelve hundred or a thousand. It just it just wasn't. There wasn't an emperor in Rome who didn't have a same sex relationship. Not one. <laughs> I was going to say something completely ridiculous like, uh, well, (laughs) the garment gave it away. (laughs) Anyway, great. That probably wasn't very funny, but uh, I'll give you the last word. I'm late for the break, which I repeatedly am today and every day. Okay. Um, You know, I think that uh, the the amount of suffering that goes on in Newfoundland Labrador breaks my heart. And I know personally of youth who have suffered and have killed themselves. And I'm asking Christians in this address on Sunday to rethink that approach to homosexuality and sex. And I'm going to tell them all about the sex life of Jesus and the sex life of the Bible and ancient prophets and all of it. And so that we can get a more normal and a more inclusive and a more rational and just a more decent common sense appreciation of sexuality. Sexuality, homosexuality, is not only normal, it's necessary. We don't know of any sexuality on the earth without it. It's throughout the animal kingdom. And God, it's necessary because it takes the heat off the procreative imperative for one thing and many other things too. And it's necessary and normal. That's why God keeps making them despite legislation to the contrary. Yeah, we're sexual (laughs) beings. And that's about the bottom line. Uh, Greg, I'd uh, I'd be curious to hear what sort of feedback and reaction you get, but I appreciate you making time for the show. Stay in touch. Great talking to you, Patty. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Greg Malone. That's uh, interesting stuff. And I'll be... Look, some of the issues that have been forever and a day taboo, religion and sex and politics and stuff... I think part of the problem has been that we haven't had the ability to have these just open, honest conversations about it. Not a determination of us versus them or right versus wrong, just a conversation about what we see, who we are, where we're going, and the best way to get there. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number five, Dave. Okay, five it is. Good morning, Sarah. You're on the air. Hi there. Thank you so much for allowing me to speak. Um, I wanted to talk about the um, incident that we've been that you highlighted in the morning about the um, three Muslim women who were attacked. Um, I have to say it's been it's been very devastating to read that news because I'm a brown person and and and, and you know I'm not visibly Muslim, but for them to be able to face this as visibly visibly Muslim would be so difficult. Um, one thing that you asked earlier was somebody was asking that how do they know this is a racist incident? Um, I my 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 question is to ask them that you know like why aren't they making the space for people to actually comfortably talk about this? Um, it's always been difficult to talk about racism in Newfoundland. It's always been difficult to to 
freely, openly discuss about these things. Um, and, and even as a person who I'm, I'm speaking today, I'm, I'm nervous about this, right? I'm worried that, that I'm speaking about this and, and, and we're a minority. And I'm a member of the white majority, but I will also feel the wrath of some who do not want to hear this. There will be the automatic reaction of, why aren't we talking about black-on-black crime and a Syrian father smacked his Syrian... Like, please, we can talk about everything, but let's not just immediately deflect and distract from these important conversations because it might make someone feel bad. And just one more comment on that, and then I'll let you say whatever you like, Sarah. Mm -hmm. Nobody is saying that if you are white, you are inherently an abusive, uh, ridiculous racist who is there to hurt and to hate. No one's saying that. If we don't call it out when we see it, then we're just letting things perpetuate. We're not highlighting how detrimental it is to society. It's not to say that if you're white, you should wake up feeling guilty Every morning, you colonize a racist. No one's saying that. Let's just be honest with what's actually happening and talk about it. And and you know what? It takes courage. It, it takes a lot of work to start talking about these things. And I think that the conversation needs to start. Um, that, that, that space needs to be created by white Newfoundlanders, right, to say that, yes, Let's talk about it. Let's give you let's give you the voice. Let's give you the power to actually talk about this openly and not be scared anymore, not receive push like pushback or or, or be able to say that okay, yes, this happened. This was a minor incident, but I let this go. And this minor incident can someday become a major incident. So I, I feel like I feel like those conversations really need to start happening. And I think that what is important here as well is to bring women in this conversation. This happened to young women, to, to see what, to hear what they're saying, to hear their voices, to, to amplify those voices. I think it's very important to hear those. And I, I'm just like Malak, she, I, I'm reading the news and Malak is what, in grade nine. And, and the way she, she handled this incident is sort of, I'm not visibly Muslim, but it, it, it is a confidence boost for me to see that, you know, she handled it with, with the care, with like she was, she was brave, she was courageous about it. And it is, it is important for people to listen to something like this as well. Um, I just really wanted to add my voice and I want people who are listening to just start talking about this, to, to really start, you know, making the space for people to talk about this and, and not be hateful, please not push back and, and respect people who are coming forward and, and wanting to speak about this. That's all I have to say. Well, I'm glad you said it here and uh, people make no mistake you're more more than welcome to join us on this show for these types of discussions because without them we're just asking for status quo and status quo is not working for anybody. So I'm really pleased you made time for the show, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you so much for making time. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Good stuff. Let's go to line number six. Norman, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Hi. Uh, I guess you had a problem. I uh, had a car and I sent her back. And now they want to say I owe some $16,000. What do you mean you sent it back? Well, I gave it back to them because I couldn't afford a payment. And now they're going to renew my mortgage. And they want an application from the government. I don't know why. And he says that if he puts the sixteen thousand on my mortgage, it's not going to go up. So, what's the government's role in dealing with a, a lease that wasn't paid out or a mortgage? I'm not sure. What does that mean? Do you know? Uh, no, they wouldn't tell me. 
they just said that if he goes to them, what they take, goes to my mortgage, renews it. He wants an uh, application from the government, hmm. and he won't tell me what it's about. <laughs> I'm not sure what that means. So uh, let's start at the beginning. When the payments became unaffordable, you went back to the dealership and simply dropped the keys off, or did you have a conversation about, you know, some sort of uh, renewing and to extend the lease and so the payments will come down or anything of the sort before you just had no choice in your own mind to drop, drop the keys? No, uh, they repoed the car, see? Come and get oh, the Oh, so it was repo. Okay. Yeah. I know, I offered them $400 a month, and they never said nothing, never even answered it. Said nothing about it. Put it on the $400, you wouldn't say nothing. Norman, I wish I knew what it meant for government to get involved with some sort of application or submission. I'm not really sure what that means, so I'm not really equipped to uh, speak to that. Oh. It's a strange one, though. So, obviously, the creditors had been hounding you, and you've been getting phone calls about not making your payments on your vehicle. Uh, how long did this go on before it ended up with a repo man taking it out of the driveway? Well, I, I, I made all the payments. There's only one payment I missed. That's when the uh, repo her. That's the only one I missed. You missed one payment, then they took the car? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I said, I offered them $400, and they never said nothing. And what was the payment? 600 hmm. Two-thirds is a good shot. I mean, you're dealing with an honest broker who's tried to make the payments. Seems uh, pretty uh, pretty much a trigger finger to miss a payment and gone. Sending over the wrecker or the, the tow yeah. truck and gone is the vehicle. That's unfortunate. What I don't understand is you give your car back, and he got her, got her sold now, by the way, and how come I still owe $16,000? On a car I ain't got. Yeah, I, I guess that would be your obligation with signing an agreement for the lease or the loan. Um, I, know, I guess hindsight is really helpful sometimes. But if you knew it was coming, you maybe could have tried to put it out there for someone to take over your lease. And so then consequently, you wouldn't have your mortgage uh, complicated or further compromised because of your debt. So it's just a drag that it happened. And too bad the dealer wasn't able to say to you, look, here's your options. We're taking the car or you get someone to take over your lease. You got 30 days. Just a bit of a heads up as to what's next. Yes, I know. Oh, my. <clears throat> but can they uh, do that? Uh, can they do that? I mean, with the mortgage. They do have the opportunity to garnish you one way or the other, whether it be that they'll see one of your outstanding loans or line of credit or your mortgage or your pay, that they have those opportunities to get their money. And there's a long agreement that you signed with a lease and or people who have a purchase, a monthly purchase plan from a dealer. They've got opportunities to get their, I was going to say pound of flesh, but to get their money. But what I am going to do is try to figure out, I know guys in the auto business, uh, I need them to tell me what this means about government's role and government application or what even that includes. So I'll try to figure that much out and speak to it when we get a chance again on the show. But would you like to say anything else this morning, Norman? Uh, can they uh, garnish my uh, old age pension? I, pensions are different. There's, I don't think it's the same as the going after my wages here but that again i just jotted that down it's curious to say because i just jotted down cpp so those are the two questions i have i don't know the answer but i'm going to try to find out okay i appreciate the time norman yeah, thank you take good care bye-bye
Yeah, that's curious. He was a bit of a mind reader or a pen reader because I just put down CPP question mark. Anyway, we'll figure that one out. Let's take a break. When we come back, there's a caller talk about the need for a library. We're downtown town. Uh, Rhonda wants to talk about something, the issues surrounding the attack on the Muslim girls, and then we're going to speak about whatever you want to speak about. The topics are endless. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Rhonda, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Oh, good. Um, we were listening to um, the story about these uh, three girls at Mary Brown's. That's not good, hey? No, absolutely not. Um, I want these girls to know that Newfoundlanders are not like this. That... I don't know what was wrong with that man. It's not a normal occurrence. We have um, women from different countries taking care of my aunt 24-7, and they are the nicest, friendliest people. We get together, we're in a room, we include them in conversation, and we have a blast. We're laughing and having a good time and they love to see us coming and we love to have them that's a good thing the unfortunate reality is that's not always the case right so again i'm careful not to paint a light of that uh, everywhere you turn everybody is that type of person because it's simply not true but if we don't acknowledge it when it does happen then that gives it the possibility to happen even more frequently and like i said to another caller it's not like every time that this type of interaction happens that it gets one videotaped secondly reported or posted online or followed up by the media oftentimes these types of things happen and nobody knows about it other than the person that engaged a visible minority or that person himself. So, yeah, I'm glad you have that type of relationship with your friends that look after your... You said it was your aunt, right? Yes. Okay. And also, my great-aunt married a black man. Um, that's, like, you know, two generations back. And, you know, Uncle Vince, like, you know, was was a wonderful father. And he was a hard worker. He provided for his family. And, like, we have lots of, of um, different race, races in, the, in our family. And it doesn't matter. We don't care what color your skin is. We care what your heart condition is. And if you're a good person. Like, it doesn't matter. Like... I don't know why people would uh, set out to hurt somebody, and especially three little girls working and and trying to get by in life. They're just starting out. I don't know what provokes this. I suppose it's the same stuff. Is it's it's a different and changing face of the community. And people are used to what they're used to. And sometimes, but based on the the fact that there are changes happening, and we some people might not understand exactly what's going on or the people that are arriving and what they're all about, as opposed to lumping them into some dangerous category, which may not have anything to do with this individual. I think we've just got a lot of uh, misnomers and unknowns that lead people to be fearful of change. It's sometimes as simple as that. 
And I'm like, there's a lot going on in Newfoundland right now. Yeah. Money is scarce. People are afraid. You know, they're sacrificing one thing for another. Sure. And, like, like the province is changing as a whole just because of COVID and the aftermath. Like, nobody feels the same since COVID. To get out, get some fresh air, do your thing, you still got to be protective over yourself. Mm-hmm. And I find that people are a little bit more rude. Well, that could very well be. Uh, people have reacted differently to this. I think the the aftermath of the pandemic is going to be something that many struggle with for a long time, whether it be what's happened with their finances or their job or their relationships or their health, their mental health. So that's going to be the long-running conversation, which is going to be extremely difficult because it's hit so many people sideways, and you can tell it quite clearly. You know, even some people's, what used to be social butterflies now, don't go anywhere and maybe have drifted away from some of their friends and unfortunately possibly some of their family. So things will be different for the foreseeable future, hopefully, we can collectively figure out a way to turn it around because it's not the same country it was in 2018 or 19. It's just unfortunately not, and it's not better. And that's something I think we can get a grip on, but the long-term impact on people's mental health and their mental wellness and their willing to uh, be societal, things have changed. It's, I, I see it and hear it all the time. So I hope we can get our wrap our minds around that. Well, before the pandemic, myself and my family, we had started up a small group in our community to help people with uh, mental health and physical disabilities. Good. And it was to come in, read a book if you want to, play games if you want to, make crafts, learn some music. Like, that was there, but right now, it's not there because... Well, for one, we're all getting over COVID and the lingering side effects to COVID. And two, like, we don't, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I try, maybe I'm just kidding myself, but I try not to worry too, too much about what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, I can only really control what I say. I can only have a direct impact on myself and my family, my friends. The big societal issues, that's why I kind of rely on callers like yourself to try to help us understand how you're feeling, where you are, and why you feel the way you do, and so that we can just have some conversations and hopefully get through it, because we're going to be a while here getting through it. The pandemic may indeed become an endemic, and it won't be all the worries about the virus. It'll be worries about other things that the virus and the pandemic has caused. So I think you're onto something there, Rhonda, and I'm glad you made time for the show. Thank you very much also for your patience in the queue this morning. Oh, no problem anytime. Take good care. You too. Alrighty, bye bye. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number three. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Well, good morning. I am calling about the very strong need for our downtown library. Um, for many years, in different places, small towns, large towns, big cities, I've always used the library to read, to write, 
to use a computer, to use a photocopier, to ask directions or information from the librarian, to take out a book, and so on, and for classes sometimes, and also to be around other people in an informal way. A hub that usually the downtown library provides a hub for people of all kinds. And when I came to St. John's many years ago, I was astonished to find there was no downtown libraries. They were out in the suburbs, but nothing downtown. For all the taxpayer residents down there, the visitors, the businesses, I I couldn't believe this was happening. And especially in these days when things are starting to open up a little bit and people have been staying at home and to themselves, there are many people of all ages living on their own in the downtown. And this uh, downtown library would provide a meeting place and a hub for people to get together for for meetings or for using books and so on, as I've already mentioned. Right. I mean, the closest library to you would be the A.C. Hunter Library in the Arts and Culture Center, but that's not downtown. No, it's Uh, not downtown. It's about five minutes walk from the Mun Library, which doesn't make sense to me at all. And for people who choose or don't have cars, it's very awkward. It's also embarrassing to say to visitors, no, there's no library here. They call, you know, they want to know whatever and ask questions, where's the library? There isn't one downtown. And I, I just think it's weird and not acceptable to me as a taxpayer that the city is willing to fund a convention center, an ice rink, and other things, but not a library. And <clears throat> I really, really think that we need to get on to this again. I know people have spoken about it in the past, but I know for me, I would not vote for a counselor who is not pro a library downtown and a leader, one of the counselors who would take it on. Uh, I think that Anybody who cares about a downtown library should speak to their downtown counselor or to their counselor, sorry, and ask that this be done. And we've had spaces that have been open that could have accommodated a library in the downtown core. Uh, How long have you been here? Well, since 1995, started visiting and then moved here about the year 2000. Okay. If I remember correctly, um, there used to be a library in City Hall. Am I off on thinking that? I don't remember one there. It was when I was a child, but uh, maybe I'm just misremembering something. From what I've heard, the last one was where then the... was taken over by the museum, and then the museum was taken out. Yeah, on Duckworth Street, yeah, at yeah. the bottom of the cathedral. And I thought when the rooms were built that surely a library would be put in that building, and it wasn't. And as you say, there are many buildings downtown which are sitting either not rented or they're empty or they're, they could be used. And it wouldn't have to be a gigantic one, but it needs to be one that's functioning and up-to-date and with a, a librarian. Uh, I just don't understand. I've never been in a city or a town or even a small town without a downtown library. What do you think? I Well, I've been, I think, probably every capital city in the country. I can't picture one that does not have a, mm-hmm. a library in the downtown core. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, of course, that would be maybe on the skirts of the business center, just beginning into the residential center. We're very much centralized in what people would call the downtown. I'm pretty sure you could probably say that about every capital city in the United States as well as Canada. Hmm. And other countries, too. Oh, downtown. yes, of course. Yeah. I was just sticking close to home with that, yeah. that thought. But uh, I understand where you're coming from. It's, this has been bandied about. 
And I don't know if there's ever been any pragmatic move or look at it. And this is not a revenue generator. It's like a lot of different things that are provided by communities. They're there for community. You don't make money when you build a park, but you won't make money when you build a library. But it could be a hub just like a park would be. So, well, you know, they are. They tend to be a central hub, and they attract people. Uh, you know, if you're thinking of moving here or if you're thinking of visiting here, that might be one of the first things you want to check out and certainly get information from and to be told it doesn't exist that i think it's i think it's a black mark for the city i think it shows the priorities the city council has and I'm, I do, I'm not impressed by that, and I don't think most people would be. There was a huge kerfuffle here. I'm going to say it was in 2014, maybe, where the province was cutting back funding for provincial libraries, and <laughs> there was a lot of serious negativity surrounding that announcement, and then they did it about face and restored the funding for libraries, and that was much more uh, for libraries outside the capital city. But your point is understood, and I'm glad you made time for this program this morning. Well, I will just say, if anybody out there who's listening cares about this, please talk to uh, a city councillor about this. And I, I understand that funding has, uh, that funding is available, has been available for the ones in the suburbs. But people live downtown, they're taxpayers, and we have visitors and businesses downtown who need it downtown in the Central Lake location. And uh, it's a matter of priority. And if the city can afford to fund convention centers and ice rinks and other things, I think certainly this is something that needs to be at the top of the list. Yeah, and those two facilities uh, also have a tax associated with hotel night stays, which helps to fund them. But that doesn't mean you have to take that additional taxation or fee burden to apply to all to fund a library, especially when we've had empty spaces. That would be absolutely conducive to a library. And it doesn't have to be the grand library that we see, the new one in Halifax, even though it's gorgeous and well attended. Uh, I appreciate you making time for the show. They're flagging me off to the break. You're always welcome. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back. Jackie's there to talk about community pride. Brendan wants to talk about a new crackdown at Robinwood Bay with unsecured loads. There was 30 of those infractions, I think, ticketed this past weekend. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back. Uh, let's do it. Line number four. Jackie, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. Um... During my two-four weekend, we decided to stay close to home. So my daughter, and mutual friend, and her daughter, we went for a drive up around Buren Bear. Anyway, we come across this little tiny beach. There was a bunch of old boys on the beach burning like wood and stuff. It had taken down, fallen down trees, and we're burning them and breaking up the beach. Now they had no skin in the game. They make this beach look beautiful, their own time. And on top of the hill was the Ukrainian flag flying. And these old guys stopped to have a yarn and they were saying like they take a lot of pride in their little community. I wish more people did that. So just to make sure I understand, so there was just a group of people that took it upon themselves to clean up the beach. 
Yes. Okay. Yeah, which thankfully happens sometimes. You know, there's some formal beach cleanups. I know out in Topsail Beach, I, we participated in one one time. But, I mean, pride of place is not what it once was. You know, look no further than the fact that we've got to shut down the Outer Ring Road, pay $80,000 to clean up the place when it could, most of it could have been avoided. So it's, I, I just don't know why we're so oblivious to being proud of where we live to keep it clean and to pay attention to it because it's not the way it should be. No, it's not. And it's, I mean, take a little bag in your car, put your own garbage in your own car take it home with you it's too easy it's uh, i was getting uh, gas which everyone's a fear, is fearful of these days getting gas one day i don't know let's say two weeks ago and as i was pumping my gas i could see between me and the door to the gas station there was a discarded coffee cup and i was hoping that it wouldn't blow too far away because big deal i'd reach down and just grab it throw it in the garbage whatever and not looking for the order of canada that was on my mind but then a young fella came out the door saw it picked it up and this woman who was close by praised him up and down as if he had just had cured cancer just imagine we're that appreciative of someone picking up a straight coffee cup that this lady felt that she had no choice but to tell that young man just how great he was for picking up a coffee cup i just got a bit of a kick out of it well, that's how I felt about these guys. Good for you. Why not? They stopped and had a yarn like they were friendly, and it was just a lovely day. They made our day. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And so these were local men, and your reference to the Ukrainian flag was about what in particular? It, just on top of the hill, somebody had a Ukrainian flag flying. Okay. Which is a beautiful thing to see. Yeah, well, that's part of the conversation, isn't it? There's been many, at least a couple of hundred uh, uh, Ukrainians have arrived here since the conflict began. Uh, I'm glad that you enjoyed that particular site. And if everyone just chipped in a little tiny bit, as opposed to some people taking it on as a monumental task, we could probably overcome that particular problem pretty quickly. Yes. Good to have you on the show. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Jackie. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Let's see. Uh, Brennan wants to talk about the unsecured load, which I'm into. You know, there was, uh, I made mention of it, I suppose, on Tuesday. And there was also thought that maybe we should applaud people versus just write tickets and condemn people. I think we could probably do both. Like I mentioned many times out in the city of Cornerbrook, they'll have a little contest where there's a financial incentive to go out and clean the place up. They'll have a couple of coffee cups with a special little mark on it or what have you. You bring it to City Hall, you get your 100 bucks or what I can't remember what the number was. So we can indeed applaud both, but you know full well. A significant amount of the grout in the ditches along the side of the road on the outering road blew out of someone's vehicle. No doubt it did. And there's simply no need of it. Let's take a break. Uh, Brandon wants to talk about that. Kimberly waiting for surgery, keeps getting prescribed drugs as opposed to her her procedure. And then we're talking about shrimp. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number six. Brendan, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Grand this morning. How are you doing? Very good. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was on the Ring Road, uh, going towards Logie Bay Road, and just a pass under the where it cuts off and goes to Walmart. There, uh, a green big garbage truck passing the passing lane, and uh, kept turning. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, all the garbage came up through the top of it, and the big sheet came flying and came out on my windshield. I couldn't see out the windshield, and uh, 
I looked at my rear view mirror, see where's on one side, see on one side on the passenger side, get close tried, and then about 12 seconds I had, I finally stopped and uh, and took the watch them off the sheet off the windshield, and uh, I was lucky, and that, all the garbage came out, and the driver didn't know, do seem to stop or nothing. He had to see the garbage coming up behind him. The whole garbage come up to the top of it, and uh, it was a big one of them green garbage trucks. And uh, I just kept following them. I couldn't see the license plate number. The license plate number was all cluttered up with, with stuff. You couldn't see the numbers and the license plate number. So this is a big green city-owned garbage truck? Pardon? This is a big green city-owned garbage truck? Yes. Okay. City-owned salary truck. Yes, it was city-owned. Yeah, I'm pretty much sure it's city-owned. I went down and I followed them all the way down to the where he's supposed to go. And when he stopped in the, 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 the guard at West and the gate, I just got out of the car with one little totem, and he just took off, and he just gave me a tom. And uh, I just told the lady in that West Ham what it was, right? My opinion, these guys are driving the garbage trucks. They don't seem to care anyway. They don't care, in my opinion. But I've seen so much garbage about going from all kinds of trucks, wherever they are. They let you go. They don't care, in my opinion. So I don't know about the Alyssa's opinion, but that's mine. So the back of the truck was open? I... No, the top, it came through the top of the truck, where it was in the top. I don't know where it came from. It, 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 it came through the top. Sometimes from the top, the it, 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 wind was blowing hard. It looked like it came from the top. Okay. And uh, so I cars behind me, and there's cars in, fr- uh, in front of me, cars in front of me, same time. So you don't know. About twelve seconds, I at least twelve seconds, I couldn't see a tank in front of me, right? So give an idea. So yeah. So very, a truck nice. with a truck with the top open might be one of those rigs that dumps out Seneca boxes because they they dump it directly into the top of the truck as opposed to. It could to be, a it could be one of them. Yeah, I'm not sure which one it was now, but uh, I couldn't see no license. I had to get the license number. We reported to the police, but I, I couldn't see the license number was all covered up, and you couldn't see it was all caved up with dark stuff. And uh, I couldn't see the license number, right? Uh, anyway, it shouldn't happen, no matter <laughs> who is driving the vehicle or who owns it. Doesn't matter, no. It's, uh, it's one thing about it, we should be more careful. Just imagine now having someone else in the car and uh, a, a younger person, newer person driving and wouldn't understand get panicked. Then the other car come behind them and especially in another car, they hit the brakes besides and... It's very easy to do, right? Because you can't see through the windshield. Well, of course, it's a big deal. Yeah, it's uh, that's what I find. With it. it's, I notice, and you know, to be honest with you, you go across the highway somewhere, right, and and all the way, and you see your garbage. Now, look, I know the garbage picked up again now, but some places it's back there again. I notice it; it's back there again. Some people got hub out, and 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 there are the main reasons for more or less, right? Uh, I think because uh, them garbage trucks going back and forth there, right? So. Well, they're certainly a uh, contributing factor, that's for sure. Brendan, I appreciate the time this morning. Thank you for your time. Take appreciate care. it. All Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. Okay, let's keep going. Let's go to line five. Terry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Patty, uh, <clears throat> I want to talk to you on the topic of the, the shrimp fishery here in Newfoundland, Labrador. Um, I was on last week talking to... Uh, Mr. Callahan, there was the whole set of time about the same issue, and uh, this is kind of a follow-up, I guess. Uh, we're we're having the same problem in the shrimp fishery <clears throat> as we had last year, and that is we can't get DFO to open it so we can go fishing. 
And uh, different people have, uh, have taken up the issue, FFAW, CNL, trying to get an answer from DFO as to why they won't announce an opening date and won't uh, give the uh, different fleet sectors their quotas. Uh, they, they, uh, the minister, the federal minister, released the uh, overall total allowable catch for shrimp fishing in Area 6 uh, in Newfoundland Labrador on April 27th. Uh, that's a month ago now. And in the last month, they have not and will not, up till today, release the quotas for the individual fleet sectors like, uh, you know, 3K North, 2J, 3K South, 3L, and so on. And they won't announce an opening date. And uh, it's the same issue as last year, just different year. And it's creating a lot of frustration. Uh, and uh, I'm on open line again, I guess, mouthing off about it because it's one of the avenues we have. As a, and I'm always hoping that somebody from DFO and the powers to be uh, might be listening. Uh, they probably are. Terry, when is uh, shrimp usually open in those areas that you mentioned? Just curious. Um, traditionally, because our shrimp fishery in Area 6, uh, which I, I guess you know is off the south coast of Labrador and, and the northeast and east coast of Newfoundland, yep. northeast coast mostly, uh, traditionally it used to always open around 1st of May. Some years early in the industry, it opened in April, even because I can remember dragging for shrimp through ice, uh, a lot of ice at uh, times down off southern Labrador and uh, off the Strait of Belle Isle in what we call the St. Anthony Basin. But in, in the last seven or eight years, it was more like first uh, of May, you know, stuff like that, right? Um, and but now for some reason the last couple of years we cannot get it opened. Uh, last year, if you remember, it got to the point come July that my son uh, even went out on a protest fishery illegally. I remember that shrimp. Yeah, to put pressure on, and we got it open that way. And I mean, they opened it in a matter of a day or two after. Didn't even charge him for fishing illegally. Didn't even confiscate his catch. Nothing, which was extraordinary in my opinion sounds like it uh and uh, now we're going down the same road here i know it's not first of july yet but uh, it's 26th of may and they still won't give an opening date they still won't release the quota figures now one might argue that even if it was open the buyers are saying unofficially that they're not going to buy anyway at the negotiated price of a dollar 42 but uh, that remains to be seen, or if there will be some other solution to that issue. But at least if DFO would open the GD fishery and, and give the quotas, that at least then we as shrimp harvesters, we got that spoke in the wheel solved anyway. We know when we can go fishing. Now it's a matter of reaching agreement with the buyers on price. But we can't even get DFO to open it, and they won't say why. I mean, the FFAW tells me they wrote a letter to DFO a number of weeks ago trying to get it open, at least get an opening date and get the quotas down to the fleet sectors. Ryan Clary at CNL has written Ray Walsh, who's one of the big hit onshows apparently in their Underwood Hills office now, DFO, and he can't even get a reply from Ray Walsh as to why they haven't released the quotas and why he did reply on the opening date to say 
uh, it will be open sometime, and you'll know when it is. And there's no pressure on buyers until the season's open, so that's just one of those conversations that gets banged about. We'll see what actually happens when the season's open and they start to land the shrimp as to who's going to buy it, and someone will buy it. I think I think we can safely say that, Terry. Uh, so buck forty, and I'm trying to remember what it was last year. I think it was in around the same number, wasn't it? No, last year it was a bit lower. Last year the price was uh, on average around a dollar ten, dollar twelve, okay. depending on the size size of shrimp you brought in. Now this year uh, the price, uh, as I do most years, it went to arbitration to the price setting panel, and the panel chose the uh, FFAW submission of a dollar forty two. Uh, and um, of course the rumor, unofficial rumor floating around now is that the buyers are saying, well, we're not going to buy for that. Uh, and the ASP offer when it went to arbitration was 90 cents a pound. And of course, fishermen were saying, we're not going to fish for that because at this year's uh, extraordinary fuel prices and everything else, you, it's not economical. Uh, so, but that's a different issue, the price issue. The issue I'm calling about today is DFO. Yeah. I mean, this guy, Ray Walsh in St. John's at, at DFO, he must be the manager of procrastination, I guess is his title. Uh, the manager of procrastination, I don't know what other title you can give him, as he apparently is the authority to announce the opening date and release the quotas to the fleet sector. So then, and then at least we know that, that part of it anyway. And I mean, and just for your listeners' uh, education, for those who might be saying, well, what's the big deal? I heard the shrimp fishery has gone away to nothing anyway. What's he on there mouthing off about again today? Well, just a little bit of information there. Uh, this, uh, the shrimp quotas in Area 6, yes, they are down significantly from what they were seven or eight years ago. But even with that reduction in quota, this year's quota uh, is for Area 6 total is almost 21 million pounds. And at a dollar forty-two, now when it's all settled, we, we might we might not get a dollar forty-two. I don't know, but let's assume for now, at a dollar forty-two, that's almost thirty million dollars of product at the wharf. That's wharf price, okay? Thirty million dollars. And then it, it's the processing jobs in the plants, it's the trucking jobs, it's the fuel that's going to be consumed from the fuel companies, and on and on it goes. So you're still talking well over a $100 million industry in, in our fishery. And the fishery this year in Newfoundland, because this another issue is the provincial government. Uh, there's nobody in the provincial government, I don't think, realizes we have a fishery in Newfoundland other than aquaculture. The old Jesus, they're mouthing off all the time about aquaculture and the oil industry and some other, the tourism and come home year. I mean, yes, those industries are important, don't get me wrong. But we also have a fishery in Newfoundland, but you'd never know it from regards of uh, somebody in the provincial government standing up in the House of Assembly and mentioning the word wild fishery. I don't think they know what it is, including Andrew Fury. Uh, but w this year, the fishing industry in, in this province, uh, given the, the increase in our crab quotas and, and, the, and the crab prices and all the others, turbot and caitlin and cod, cod prices are up this year, is going to be close to a $2 billion industry. A billion dollars in crab alone, landed value. Yes. So, I mean, it's not a peanut industry. I mean, the income tax is going to be paid to the government out of that kind of money, and the corporate tax, and the and on and on it goes. It's 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 an industry that 
I don't know what the oil industry has worked in Newfoundland. Perhaps you can enlighten me there. Are we talking several billions of dollars? Or oil well, uh, gas it's year to year based on the price of barrel of oil and the amount of production. But uh, you can safely say around a billion dollars just in royalties to the province. That doesn't count any corporate tax, income tax, money spent in the economy by the people, five or 10,000 directly or indirectly employed. So it's certainly yeah. valuable, no doubt about that. Uh, Terry, I appreciate yeah. the time. Uh, very quickly before I do have to go, is uh, like the crab season, you got to get out and get the quota. I know tr- uh, trip limits are a concern because at some point the molt happens and then we've got a problem. Is there such a thing in the shrimp fishery where there's a worry about uh, too late in the season? Not, not from a molting perspective. No, 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 no I didn't mean, I was just using molt yeah, as an yeah, example yeah. of crab. Yeah, but with the shrimp fishery in Area 6 now, if you don't get at it early, the catch rates go down significantly. I figured, yeah. And and then with the price of fuel now, it becomes uneconomical. So it's very important in Area 6 to get at it right away, ASAP. Uh, but for some reason, and we there's a mystery as to why DFO will not open it. You know, it makes you become really facetious in your mind and come up with these uh, these nasty little theories in your mind. You know, why is it? Is it the buyers are saying to them, don't open it up because we're busy buying crab? Is it uh, the union through some hidden agenda saying, don't open that shrimp fishery yet? And is it the uh, political? I, I, I don't know. We're just trying to find answers. Uh, uh, you know, and, and we can't get any. I appreciate making time for the show, Terry. Thanks a lot. Good luck with it. Thank you at your time. Take for care. your time. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Let's take a break. When we come back, it's Boat Safety Week. Clayton Burry's the VP Sales at Virtual Marine. Let's talk about it. Boat Safety. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. And welcome back. Before we get to boat safety, let's go to line number seven. Good morning, Kimberly. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm top shelf this morning. Thank you. How are you? I'm not doing so great. What's going um, on? Well, last year, uh, first of all, before I go into my story, I want to commend my family doctor. He is just fantastic, and there's only so much that he can do. Um, I also want to commend all the doctors and nurses. They've been working so hard, and I know that there's only so much they can do. Unfortunately, like when it comes to the bottom of it, it's it goes right to Minister Haggy and the whole government that has to do with all the health care. Anyway, last year, I hurt, I hurt my knee. I tore the ligaments, and I had um, a special x-ray done at St. Clair's Hospital, um, a detailed, more detailed x-ray to see exactly what was going on. So it, show, it showed the torn ligaments, and it showed that I had very little cartilage in my, in my left knee. So that was fine. Um, my doctor... Um, just simply told me, like, take Tylenol when it hurts, and I have some crutches there to get around on when it when it hurts, like, you know, when it, when I find it hard to get around. And um, he's also been giving me cortisone shots. So I had my first cortisone shot in February, and um, I rested it for a day like he told me to, and it was lovely. I was able to get around pretty good. Aside from now and then when the weather was was cold or whatever, and arthritis would act up. It was no no big deal. So um, I was due for my second quarter, cortisone shot around the beginning of May. So around the end of April, the pain in my in my knee started, and um, it went into the first the first week of May. I got in to see my family doctor, and he put the cortisone shot in, 
um, thinking that it would give me some relief because it did before. And it only, the relief only lasted for about 12 hours. Ever since that, it's, this is the 25th of May, I believe. 26th, yeah. 26th of May, every day of May, I have suffered excruciating pain in my knee, in my leg, from my left ankle right up to the middle of my femur bone in my left leg. I'm feeling very bad pain. I ha- I'm a single mom. I have three children that I need to look after. And I can't, right now, this pain is affecting my work. I can't, I can't work. I've been reduced to social services because I didn't, I didn't hurt myself on the job. Um, I always, I've been, for the past five years, I always worked at Dominion as a part-time cashier. And that would, that would do me because, of course, uh, I'd get subsidized by social services and whatnot, whatnot and it made me and my, me and my children comfortable. So, of course, due to my knee injury, um, I can't work. I've been reduced to social services. And the big thing is I've been suffering pain every single day, Patty, every single day of May. I've gotten myself worn out, eating Advil and Tylenol. I've been taking two 500-milligram Advil and two 500-milligram Tylenol, piggybacking them every four hours, trying to kill the pain. Um, I went to the emergency room uh, the earlier part of May, just after I had the, the cortisone shot. And the first time I went down to Carbonary Emergency, they um, told me to, uh, I went up to the secretary and they said, uh, oh, if you're looking for drugs, we can't give you no more drugs. So I was like, I'm not looking for drugs. I'm not here looking for drugs. I need my knee seen to. I need my legs seen to. I don't want drugs. Okay, that was fine. I got kind of disgusted and I felt totally disrespected, so I come on home. I mean, I'm not looking for special privileges. I just want my leg fixed. What exactly is the procedure you're waiting for? Because uh, unfortunately for me, through personal experience, cortisone only helps for a very short while, and after a while it becomes virtually useless. So what exactly is being done? You're getting your full cartilage removed or getting an ACL surgery, MCL surgery? What, what is it you're waiting on? I'm just curious. Maybe that's apparently. Apparently, I've got to see an orthopedic surgeon, but I'm, I'm getting up to that. Um, I went, okay, I went down on the 19th of May, and same complaint, the excruciating pain, nothing's killing this pain. And uh, the doctor that was on, he looked at me, he felt my knee, and he said, uh, oh, you need to lose weight. Here's a shot of Dilaudid for now to kill the pain. Here's a prescription for Toradol. Uh, lose weight, and you'll find the arthritis in your leg will, be, will ease up. Very good. Okay, now I still got excruciating pain that I can't sit, I can't stand, I can't lie, I can't get comfortable in any way at all with this pain. So I went, last night I called the ambulance to go down to the hospital because I, I woke up 4 o'clock yesterday morning with pain. I, can't, I couldn't even walk yesterday. I couldn't even get to the bathroom yesterday. Um, to, like, the pain is just unbearable. So my mom came down and she called the ambulance. I went down to Carpenter Hospital last night. Um, I was seen to by the doctor. They did blood work. They did x-rays. They sent me into St. Clair's for a CAT scan. Now, in, the, in, among, in amongst all this, they gave me two morphine shots and three shots of Dilaudid through the whole time span. I was there from about 10 o'clock last night to about 7 o'clock, 7.30 this morning. That's what they were after giving me, trying to kill the pain. And they were well aware that the pain was not gone. 
it's it's just not numbing the pain at all. So the doctor comes at me this morning after all these tests, and he says, oh, Kim, like you, uh, you have a, a baker cyst behind your kneecap. Um, there's nothing we can do, basically. you got to live with this pain. So he writes me out a prescription for naproxen. Now, Patty, like I have, as I said, I'm a single mom with three kids. I can't sit home and not be able to get up and spend on them. I've got to look after my children. I have nobody to help me. I can't I can't move off medication all day long to function. I just simply want my knee fixed. Like, why can't an orthopedic surgeon see me and just simply fix this for me? I don't want to be home taking pills. Yeah, and the unfortunate uh, issue is you are not alone, and that's a terrible thing for me to think to, and even to say out loud, but there are people lining up for these surgical backlogs throughout the entire gamut of healthcare, and it's becoming... Well, it's not becoming. It is an absolute legitimate crisis. We don't need to brand everything as a crisis, but inside healthcare and the amount of people waiting, cardiac procedure, orthopedic procedures, whatever else we're talking about, people find themselves in a crisis situation. And I can feel your pain, and I wish it was different, Kimberly. I wish you well, and hopefully you'll be attended to right away. Dave Williams wants me to put you on hold. He needs to ask you something. Is that okay? That's fine. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. Boy, that's tough, man. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. We will indeed talk about boat safety after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the VP of Sales at Virtual Marine. That's Clayton Burry. Good morning, Clayton. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you doing today? Great today. Thanks. How about you? Excellent. Good man. Okay, so let's talk a little about safety. I know your company deals in some pretty big safety matters with simulators and some big complicated issues, but for the run-of-the-mill boat owner, when we say boat safety, people immediately go to life jacket and maybe not much beyond life jacket, when boat safety is way bigger than that. It is indeed, but I mean, I think uh, certainly life jacket is, is probably front row and center. Sure. I mean, I think maybe the five key safety boating messages that we'd like to try to relay uh, to the community uh, is really number one wear a life jacket at all times uh, boat sober be prepared for both you and your boat and for your passengers on board if that's the case uh, but uh, you know maybe number four taking a boating course uh, there's lots of them around uh, in the local community a number of them available online as well uh, but the other key one, and it's particularly pertinent in Newfoundland, is really to be aware of the cold water risks because hypothermia is definitely a killer. Oh, no doubt about it. When you take a boat safety course, so many little things that you don't consider with just how to navigate your own pond where your cabin is or anywhere. The ways to, because you're moving at a pretty breakneck speed uh, sometimes in some of the larger boats with bigger outboards, boats coming at you, the proper way to pass an oncoming boat, even some fundamentals that unless you're told how to do it, just like you are when you're told how to learn how to drive a vehicle, if you don't consider it, you might have two panicky boat operators coming at each other and no one knows what to do. Next thing you know, you got yourself a problem. That's right, and, and things can escalate very quickly yep. uh, when you're on the water. Um, so basically, we've been uh, we've been in the uh, in the small boat business uh, for about 17 years at Virtual Marine. So we build um, a range of of, uh, of of simulators for uh, for small boats, for fast rescue boats, uh, for life lifeboats as well. A big area that we uh, that we participate in internationally. Uh, but we also have a new training division set up. So we have some of our simulators. 
uh, you know, in use uh, right here in uh, in Paradise uh, on Bremigans. Um, in fact, we actually have a uh, an open house later today, uh, kind of in celebration of our first uh, Canada Safe Boat Council um, Boating Safety Week. So we actually have some family-friendly activities going on today that uh, may be of interest to your listeners. Uh, you can learn about uh, safe boating, how to choose and wear a life jacket. Uh, we're also going to have the Newfoundland Labrador Life Saving Society uh, um, attending as well. So um, there's a there's a range of activities going on. Um, I think it really comes down to some big trends that we're seeing in the country right now. Um, we've got something on the order of 16 million uh, people in Canada who are enjoying recreational boating. And, of course, the pandemic has even amplified that. Uh, in fact, uh, I think a lot of people would find that uh, it's difficult to find small boats, uh, even PFDs to buy them right now. They're in short supply. So it means that we have a lot of new boaters that are out there. So it's incredibly important uh, that you get training before you hit the water. Uh, and uh, it can be a family activity. Yeah, people's view of uh boating in smalls give me a 19 foot aluminum boat i grab the pull cord i engage the flywheel it starts up i put it in gear and off i go it's a little bit more complicated than that but a couple of specific questions so you talk about preparation for cold water you know for the commercial harvester what have you they'll talk about immersion suits and some of the preparations and emergency beacons what are you referring to for the recreational boater because a life jacket is one thing it won't keep you warm it'll simply keep you buoyant so what sort of preparation are you talking about well, I, I think every uh, every voyage begins with a good plan. And uh, whether you are getting in a kayak uh, and you are in inland waters or if you're on coastal waters uh, or if you're in a fishing vessel, um, I think that the preparation needs to be adjusted uh, to the uh, to the intended voyage and uh, the duration of the voyage. It starts with good planning for weather. Um, there's actually a uh, there's actually a great weather app uh, that's available uh, through uh, CSBC. It's called Weather to Boat. So weather is in bad weather, weather to boat, and it's free to download. Uh, I encourage everybody to kind of go to the app store and grab that. Uh, but again, coming back to one of the key points, preparation is everything. Uh, so knowing what your weather window is going to be, if it's going to be cold, and in Newfoundland, the water is always cold uh, until you're late, I guess, in the season uh, for inland waters. So you always have to be prepared. Put on that extra layer. Layer your clothes, um, I think, is really important. Having the necessary safety gear on board uh, of course is imperative uh, there's regulatory requirements for fishing vessels and uh, commercial uh, shipping vessels as well of course but when we start talking about some of the small boats uh, you know kayaks making sure that you've got a, uh, a bilge pump on board uh, you, you know you've got your throw rope uh, and ideally a VHF radio uh, they're low cost and uh, they can mean the difference of life and death uh, so I, I guess I would say you know, one of the key messages is really preparation. Um, later today, we're going to be uh, having a um, some uh, some drills outside. We actually have one of our simulators uh, where someone can come in and uh, drive a, uh, a fast boat uh, in our simulator in a VR setting uh, in Conception Bay. Uh, so we'd encourage anyone to come by if you've never driven a boat before.
for or if you'd like to see, uh, you know, what the correct procedures might be for starting and operating and docking a boat. Uh, we also have life jackets and various PFDs on, uh, on display as well and some other safety equipment. So if you wanted to come by, uh, it's a family activity and it's going on from 4 to 6 uh, at 47 Bremigans later. And in the life jacket world, do yourself a favor and try to pick one up that has a strap that goes under your behind your bum and up in the front so you can clasp it so to keep the life jacket from riding up over your head put a couple of oars and i mean if you're talking about salt water conditions can change very quickly a couple of oars in your small boat can save you and one thing that my my father made us learn how to do was just in case whether you're out there farting around or what have you and find yourself outside the boat just up against your own wharf in water that you can't stand up in figure out how to get back in the boat so so many people just get to the widest part of the gunnel and try to get in of course the boat is tippy and it's hard to haul yourself up out of it the advice and i'll get your opinion on this we always went to the back of the boat alongside the outboard used it as another place to grab onto you can also use it as a bit of a step and the boat doesn't get as tippy so find yourself a way to get back in the boat and in a river kayak learn how to do the roll first things first don't go anywhere unless you know how to roll yourself back up uh, a capsized river kayak that's so important, and uh, I'm an avid kayaker as well, and uh, I can tell you that there's lots of good programs out there, uh, and a number of groups, uh, Newfoundland Kayaking Group, uh, there's there's a number of them out there, and a lot of them are putting off special courses. So um, I think, you know, looking at uh, at the summer coming uh, ahead, we're into, uh, we're, we're into June just about right now. I mean, most of the accidents, uh, the drownings in Newfoundland Labrador take place uh, between May and September, no surprise. Uh, that's typically when we're out on the water uh, uh, the most. And uh, so like 67% actually of the drownings historically over the last five years have been during that time. So that is probably, you know, a, a really good time for everyone to be paying attention. Even if you're an experienced kayaker, small boater, whether you're sailing or if you've got a motorcraft, it's incredibly important that you take the time to not only learn this yourself, but teach it to your kids and, uh, and you know, make sure that you're passengers are, are well aware because if you're on board a boat your responsibility uh, is for their safety so um, again um, lots of good reasons for us to be all uh, looking at uh, improving uh, boating safety. Uh, Transport Canada should very care, uh, carefully give some consideration to changing the rules from you have to have a life jacket available for everyone on the craft to everyone has to wear one while on the craft. Uh, appreciate the time Clayton good luck. Thanks very much. Take good care bye-bye. All right, there we go. Know. That's Clayton Burry. He's the VP Sales at Virtual Marine. There's some interesting opportunities for you to get up close and personal, maybe take a spin and get some safety tips and be prepared and have a plan. All right, good show today, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.